0: First of all, I wanna just uh, begin by saying that for those of you that just, maybe you're here by accident, like Louis said, uh, or maybe you just came to Theology on Tap O.C. and didn't know a whole lot about the topic or the people, um, we we actually have a a star-studded cast here tonight. I've been in Catholic education for over two decades, and some of my um, most esteemed fellow Catholic educators are actually here. I'm only pointing this out because um, I hope that tonight I can share some thoughts on the vision of Christian education, um, but I also hope that we can do some Q&A and see what you all think. Uh, And in that portion, I think it's it's very likely that some of the esteemed educators over in this part of the room who I've spent a good part of my uh, career with might have some insight as well. So, I'm honored that you all are here. I want to give you a little bit about uh, my background because I think it really informs why I'm in Catholic education, why I think the things that I do, how I came to learn the things that I did, and all that. So uh, I'm cradle Catholic. I'm a, what we used to call, we used to get a a, a t-shirt at the, at eighth grade graduation, said nine year survivor from St. Hedwig's, uh, go Celtics in Los Alamitos. So nine years at St. Hedwig's, and then I wanted to go um, where all my friends were going, a school whose name I will not mention, uh, but my parents had something else in mind. And I went kicking and screaming to Servite High School because I thought that all boys thing was going to be super weird. And I ended up loving it. I went from Servite to Loyola Marymount University mainly because my parents were absolutely uh, committed to sending me to a Catholic university. Uh, because they, the faith was important to them and i'm telling you all this because it has to do with some of the thoughts that i'm going to share tonight um they sort of had this blind trust in a good way in my opinion like we're going to send our son to a catholic university it's important to us we're going to sacrifice whatever we can they sacrificed mightily uh, to put me through lmu and so that's where i went next as chris mentioned or alluded to i should say i studied theology at this catholic university and while that story is is a whole talk for another night. I didn't necessarily come away from Loyola Marymount, the strongest young Catholic. It was actually going back to Servite to work, which at the time, I don't wanna take credit for like having great motives. I, I thought it would just be fun to go back to Servite and work. Like right? that That's sort of where my mentality was at. But it put me back around other faithful Catholics, um, particularly my mentor in Catholic education, a guy by the name of Larry Toner. I was just around people who were serious about their faith again. And thankfully, um, I was able to call myself a graduate of Loyola Marymount University, as well as a practicing Catholic. Um, so I, I credit going back to Servite for that. While I was at Servite, um, as Chris mentioned in my bio, I got to Servite at a time when uh, we Servite had its first lay president. So in the history of the school, since 1958, it always had a, a Servite priest as president. So lay president comes on board. He's a graduate of the school. And to his credit, he really wanted to ensure that everything that we did at Servite was informed by both our Catholicity and our Servite history and traditions. So it's kind of like, okay, now that the Servite priests are not here to lead everything, how do we be intentional about what we're doing? So he called it the formation program. And I got to be a part of sort of setting it up and and, and being a part of those early talks about how we were going to do this. And so that sent me back, because I'm a nerd. I studied theology. I like to read. I like to read about history. And so it sent me back with these two degrees in theology. I'd never read a church document on education, which is pretty sad. So I went back, started reading about Catholic education, the history of it, the philosophy of it. And I was like, whoa, because I, I always thought I loved my Catholic education. I loved going to Catholic school, but I never thought school as school would be any different from a public school to a Catholic school to anywhere else. I thought it was sort of the cultural stuff around it. You know, we went to mass, we got to talk about God, we wore uniforms, whatever. You know, our parents shared values. But I never thought the actual school part would ever be any different. School is school is school is school. But as I'm reading about the history and the philosophy of Catholic education, I'm going, this is different. Like, I didn't get this. And so that led me down this rabbit hole. Um, and thankfully, at the time, like literally as I'm going down this rabbit hole, there's this growing movement that had just started to blossom, literally within a couple of years, um, of, of, of Catholic educators, Catholic schools, sort of recognizing that maybe there is more to the story and, and starting to renew themselves. So I find this organization called the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, which I assumed had some headquarters somewhere with 500 people working in it and running it. I go to one of their programs and I go to the executive director and I say, hey, I'd love to volunteer and, you know, and I think at the end of that sentence, I became the volunteer director of marketing because there was no corporate headquarters. It was like Andrew Seeley in his garage. And it was this budding organization. Well, I Seely ended up uh, being sort of at the forefront of all this. And, and I got to, when I was ready to leave Servite, I became vice president of the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, right as it really was sort of taken off. Um, and so it really allowed me to have Uh, a, a view of what was going on in Catholic education across the entire country, which is a real blessing for me. So I'm working for ICLE, I'm seeing what's going on, I'm getting to visit these schools that have renewed themselves in this, You know, sometimes we'll call classical, sometimes we'll call liberal arts, and I'll get into that in the talk. But my first impulse, my very first impulse, the first time I set foot at a school that was doing this was at St. Jerome Academy in Hyattsville, Maryland. And my first impulse was from the perspective of a father. What I witnessed, I, I thought, I cannot now not give this to my children. It's like opening Pandora's box. I, now that I know that education can be like this, I have to give it to my own kids. It just, end of story. Also, because I was professionally within Catholic education, I thought, okay, this is, this is the route that I want to follow. And that's what sort of led me on this journey. So while I'm at uh, ICLE, I see what's possible. Annie has to, you know, listen to me gush about it, you know, night after night after night after night. So when our oldest, Lizzie, is three, we're thinking, we're living in Seal Beach at the time, in Orange County, we're thinking, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna homeschool? Are we gonna start a school? Are we gonna move to a school? Long story short, we're introduced to Father Peter Irving at Holy Innocence in Long Beach, which I don't want to tangent too much, but this is too good not to share. In my time at Servite with my mentor, who I mentioned, Larry Toner, Often we would get into talking about sort of lamenting the state of of the current priesthood. And he would talk about how the priests when he was growing up were just, you know, they were the biggest studs in in town, right? He grew up in South Dakota. And uh, he would always say, I wish I could find a priest who was willing to knock on doors. Go door to door, knock on doors in his parish. Get people to his church. And so somebody says, you should talk to Father Peter Irving at Holy Innocence. Never heard of him. Google him first story I find is a story about how, when he was at his last assignment at Saints Peter and Paul in Wilmington, which is not the greatest area, neither is Philip Anderson's, uh, his family was concerned for him because he was going and knocking on doors in the local neighborhood and I thought, oh my God, we found our priest, like, this is awesome. So talk to Father Peter, one thing leads to another. He brings in ICLE to give a talk to the faculty in the spring of 2018, in the fall of 2018, we begin the renewal of Holy Innocence in the Catholic intellectual tradition fall of 2018. Um, some of those educators are, are here tonight, I'm thankful to say, it's and it's been an incredible experience. So, I'm working for ICLE, Holy Innocence gets off the ground, We're, we renew this parish K-8 through school, it's going really well, but Father Peter just hates the fact that these kids are receiving this amazing education K-8, through and because they either can't afford it or recognize that it's not even worth it if they could afford it to go to certain other schools in the area. They're just going to the local public school for high school. So he sits me down and he says, I want to petition the Archdiocese of Los Angeles to add grades nine through 12 at Holy Innocence. Will you come on board full time to help us do that? So then I transitioned from ICLE to Holy Innocence. I helped lead that project and thankfully we, we had it we we've, we began the petition pre-COVID We went through COVID. You can imagine how high you know we were on their priority list going through COVID to approve that plan. Finally get it approved, and things are going well. We're adding grades 9 through 12, so we're the only Catholic classical K through 12 parish school in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. I'm thinking I'm going to be there for the rest of my life. And then Servite comes calling again for the position of president. I only mention this to say that I go there, the president is Servite, for like I don't know it was it two or three seconds I forget but had that not happened I would not have made the connections that I made that led to my current position as executive director of the Camino schools so I mean the whole path was just unbelievably ordained by God and I'm just so thankful for every bit of it so now here I am as executive director of the Camino schools schools which do not exist yet uh, which when you're in education it's sort of a once in a career opportunity to be a part of something you know that you build from the ground up so that's how I came to my current spot. And I, j- I just give you all that because I think it'll fill in some context as to, as to how I got to some of the conclusions that I did that I'm about to share. So Louis asked me to talk about what is the Christian vision of education, what makes the Christian vision unique as opposed to, say, the secular vision or some other vision. So first let's define our terms. We get the word education, and there's a Latin scholar in the house, so I'm a little nervous about this, but we get the word education from the Latin ducere, Right, did I say that right, Mr. Corrigan? Ducere, which means to lead out. To lead out. So that begs the question, to lead out from what and to where. So in order to really understand any vision of education, Christian or otherwise, we need to start with what is the telos? What is the what is the purpose? What is the the point that we're we're trying to reach, you know, through this enterprise? So I think a lot of people, if they if they stopped and thought about it, might that say that the purpose of education is to lead from ignorance to knowledge, right? That would be a, a, a good stab at that. But as Christians, we have an even deeper significance, right? So we, we understand it's not just from ignorance to knowledge, but it's from sin to salvation. Right? So there's there's a deeper level of meaning for us Christians. And all of this gets to the dichotomy between those two, between just you know, ignorance to knowledge versus Sin to salvation. To me, that's the difference um, between two words, education and formation. Because one of the first things that I noticed when I was starting to read church documents on education was that the church actually very rarely uses the the, the word education in her documents. What you see far more often is the word formation. Because formation really uh, implies a much deeper um, enterprise, right? Education, whether rightly or not, because I think when you look at the root of the word, it doesn't necessarily imply this, but it's become uh, to to be known in the modern world, education is thought of as connected to merely the intellect. It's it's usually strictly thought of as as a merely intellectual enterprise. Hence, ignorance to knowledge versus sin to salvation. To me, that's the difference between education and formation. Now, when you think about or start to read about the roots of Western education, right? The, the, the educational tradition of Western civilization. The roots of that educational tradition go back to Greece, of course. And the Greeks had this notion called paideia. Okay, so for the Greeks, their educational enterprise was what they called paideia. Okay, what does paideia mean? The Greeks really saw it as the handing on of civilization. So the Greeks were big about the, how do we ensure that the polis gets, gets passed on from generation to generation. So they didn't have this idea of, like, you know, a curriculum where you got to pass certain... T- they, they wanted hand on the whole of civilization. They said, how do we best do this? Well, through this enterprise that we're going to call Paideia. So it's a handing on of civilization. Big enterprise. The Romans uh, inherit that, and they, their translation of Paideia, or this educational enterprise, was humanitas. In other words, how do you pass on the essence of what it means to be human? So that's how the Romans looked at education, right? passing on of the essence of humanity, humanitas. So I want to share with you a quote from, I'm, I'm, as a good educator, I have a stack of books up here. Right? So I tend to, like, I'm, I think part of the way that God has called me to do what I've done in my career is I think I'm a, just a good synthesizer. I don't have many original ideas. I just grab a lot of other people's ideas and sort of push them all together um, and then talk about them. So this is a book called The Heart of Culture, A Brief History of Western Education. Cannot recommend it enough if you're a nerd like me. The author is actually, it's the, the I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Habiger Institute? H-A-B-I-G-E-R. For Catholic Leadership at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Great book. So here here's what they say about um, Paideia. It says, At the heart of the Greek achievement was a particular approach to education. The Greeks were not unique in developing an educational tradition. Every people in civilization have done so. Their uniqueness came in the way they increasingly founded their educational practices on universal principles that could be adapted by non-Greeks as well. Isocrates, one of the consolidators of the Greek educational tradition, once wrote, The people we call Greeks are those who have the same culture as ours, not the same blood. Isocrates' word translated here as culture was paideia, An important term to understand. Early in Greek history, paideia had meant simply the formation given to young Greek men of the aristocracy to enable them to function well as members of their city's ruling class. Over time, as the Greek educational vision was democratized and began to dominate and inform the whole civilization, the word paideia came to mean much more. It referred to the overarching human and cultural ideal toward which the whole society aspired it eventually came to function almost as a religion. When the Romans embraced that ideal, they translated Paideia into Latin with the word humanitas, the essence of being human. Our universities today have continued to use this same word to describe the program of study that theoretically at least helps their students fully develop their human possibilities, the humanities. So those are the roots of education in the West in the ancient times. Then the Christians come along, right? And we understand as Christians that God ordained the timing of Christ coming into the world for very specific reasons, right? The the world was ready for it in some way. So the Christians inherit this Greek education, um, and it's taken up by a a greater Christian vision. So the Greeks identified this nebulous Logos, right? The the Greeks found Logos. Um, But the Christians come along and say, you're right, you were right about Logos but we know who it is, and we met him in the flesh, and he told us explicitly what it means to be human and how to be happy. So over time, the Christians inherit this Greek and Roman ancient uh, educational tradition, and they Christianize it, right? They baptize it. And so over time, Christendom sort of perfects and hones this notion of, and that is why we have this term classical education, this, this method of education, this philosophy of education that we get from the ancients, but the church really took it up, baptized it and made it even better. And and you get to the point where the the climax was probably um, the Jesuits when they were still strong. And there's many strong Jesuits. Anyway, we'll go down that path. But the the climax is really the Jesuit ratio studiorum. And that was sort of the the pinnacle of of Christian education. But a big part of um, the development of that that we see somewhere between the 6th and ninth centuries, the actual, like where, where it first gets defined, people can argue about who said it first. But that's somewhere around the 6th and ninth century, we get this notion of the seven liberal arts, right? So we've all heard of you know, liberal arts education. Well, it's rooted in this notion of the seven liberal arts. The trivium, which means three, and the quadrivium, which means four, hence the seven liberal arts. So the trivium, you have the three liberal arts, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. These are the arts of language. The idea being that all learning proceeds from language. So if you're going to be good at getting to know anything, you got to understand how language works. Grammar, the building blocks of things. Logic, comparing and contrasting, arguing. Rhetoric, the expression of truths in a, in a way that is persuasive. Okay? So that's the trivium, the first three traditional liberal arts. The quadrivium, which often gets Overlooked compared to the trivium the quadrivium are the arts of number So we have arithmetic geometry music and astronomy the People today are like astronomy seriously um, But these are the arts of number and this is fascinating right? I'm, I'm not an expert on the quadrivium, but even this notion is interesting arithmetic geometry music astronomy arithmetic is number in the abstract geometry is number in space music is number in time and astronomy is number in space and time so the notion of the quadrivium it's not about learning you know the, the the constellations so much it is about entering into the realm of eternal and unchanging truths and understanding how that impacts our understanding of reality fun fact Abraham Lincoln would often uh, boast about the fact that That anywhere he went, he would travel with a printed copy of the Bible and Euclid's elements. Abraham Lincoln uh, attributed his own uh, rational thinking to mastering Euclid's elements. For those of you that aren't familiar with Euclid's elements, and I'm not that familiar with Euclid's elements, but there's like, how many proofs are there total? 500 something or somewhere in that, that range? Abraham Lincoln would, would pride himself on the fact that you could say, okay, Abe, um, uh, Euclid's Elements, proof number 372, and he could rattle it right off and show you how to prove it all by memory. And there's people who have like, studied his speeches, actually, and like, that's another path we could go down for an hour. But the quadrivium is, is this idea of these timeless truths, a, a way of thinking, a way of understanding these eternal truths in reality. So those are the seven liberal arts. And they aren't so much... Um, subjects of study the way we think of today where you decide whether you're gonna study marketing or you're gonna study history, they're, they're ways of thinking, right? So if you, the, the idea is if you've mastered the seven liberal arts, you could go off and learn anything and do anything and be pretty competent in it. And it was only then, in this, in this traditional way of thinking, the traditional liberal arts, it was only after you mastered those seven liberal arts that you would ever go off and study anything in a specialized way that he would ever decide, okay, now I'm gonna be a doctor or I'm gonna be a lawyer or whatever the case might be. Everyone mastered the seven liberal arts and, and then you had this great thriving community because everybody could think well. And if you wanna know what happens when a civilization can't think well, well, turn on the news. <laughs> so that was sort of the, you know how we got the traditional Christian uh, view of education. Fast forward a couple thousand years And we have today what is known as modern or progressive uh, education. And it was really uh, brought in by a a gentleman by the name of John Dewey. He was was a philosopher slash educator at the University of Columbia. And he had a huge influence on um, the philosophy of education that we now um, sort of espouse in the modern world. And so I wanna read you just a a very short um, quote about Dewey's approach. And this is from a book that I cannot recommend highly enough, called Recovering a Catholic Philosophy of Elementary Education by Curtis Hancock, very specific title. So he tells us that Dewey's thought was part of a movement known as pragmatism, which like some other naturalistic philosophies was partly inspired by Darwinism. Just as what is fit and suitable is what survives the trials of natural selection, so too in the realm of ideas, what is true and valuable is what is produce, is what produces the most practical or pragmatic results. A statement or a hypothesis is true, or this is a, a, a quote of Dewey's, quote, a statement or a hypothesis is true or false insofar as it leads us to or away from the end which we have in view. Now that's a scary notion. If you need a recap of that, that's anything, something is true or false, depending on where we want to end up. So if I want to end up by confusing you and saying that two plus two is five, well then two plus two is five is a true statement. Right? And, and so we have this pragmatic approach to education. And the emphasis is how do we make good citizens in a pragmatic way? And that might have been a noble uh, quest of Dewey's. I'm not a Dewey expert. But the problem is how do you define a good citizen? And unfortunately, some people have a tendency to define a good citizen as someone who is economically advantageous to, to the economy. Right. And so slowly over time, we get this notion that to be pragmatic and, and, to, and to be practical and, and to produce results, we get to the notion that we have today of college and career readiness. That's the pragmatic notion of education today. That if, you, if you're going to put kids through a K-12 system, then you better have some results. And the results are college and career readiness career readiness. Now, as Christians, you know, going back to the telos, right, if salvation is the goal, college and career readiness is a really low bar, (laughs) a really low bar. The other thing that happens with modern education is you have this professionalization of education, right? So you have this notion that, you know, to be a teacher, to be an educator, you got to go to, you got to go to Columbia and get a master's in education or a teaching certificate or a credential And and that's a very modern notion, right? A very modern notion. Most teachers, you know, pre-100, 150 years ago were just well-educated people, well-read people. Well, you know, they didn't need a certificate to show you. The reason I point that out is I think it really impacted the church and Christian education because you have these pastors and these ministers and people who are sort of focused on a different lane. And all of a sudden, the way schools develop, they go, "Well, gosh, I don't have a master's in education. I don't have a teaching credential, so what do I know about education? and we sort of started to, to give over the leadership of education to only those who had this professional education, which was informed by a philosophy of education, a philosophy of life, really, that is totally antithetical to the Christian vision of, of human life, right? So I think it was a worthy impulse that schools slowly over time, well, I wanna be relevant, I wanna show that we're serious, so you have bishops or pastors say, well, hey, you know, we wanna show families that, that we're a serious school, so I want all the, all the teachers at my Catholic school to go get teaching credentials from Cal State Fullerton or wherever. And they didn't realize that when they go and get those teaching credentials from Cal State Fullerton or wherever, they are being educated in a philosophy of education that again is antithetical to the Christian vision of human flourishing. So that's sort of what's happened. And I, and I think the best way to think about it just in, in summary terms is this dichotomy, right? Between like the idea of a mind Versus the the idea of a soul, right? How would you educate a mind versus how would you educate a soul um, or form a soul? I should say um, the intellect versus the will. The other thing I didn't touch upon, but there's this notion in, in in the tradition of Western education of the servile arts, meaning a trade that I could learn that was that helped me like put food on the table, hence servile, versus the liberal arts, and those are just those things that allowed me to be a free human being. Or education or formation versus training. So that's really the the dichotomy, I think, between the Western tradition of education and, and what we have today. So, what are we to do about it? My vote is to follow the church and her teachings. And what I find fascinating, when you start studying church documents, you see the church start talking about education only when If you're studying the history of of this trajectory, things are starting to go awry in terms of public education and Dewey and and all that stuff. So, when I had the great fortune of of visiting Franciscan University uh, in Steubenville, Ohio last fall, recently, within the last year, and there was this um, used bookstore, of course I can't help but uh, go browse books, and I found this awesome old book, totally out of print, Education, Papal Teachings. So you open this book, and it, it basically, they culled through all papal teachings on education. Well, if you open it to the very first page of any content, it is from Pius XII, who reigned from 1820 to 1823, and in the encyclical Deus Satis in the year 1800. Now that, so this is the first utterance of anything specifically on education in any papal teaching in the year 1800, and he says this. You must take heed to the whole flock wherein the Holy Ghost hath placed you bishops. But it is the children and growing youth who have first claim to the care and indefatigable zeal which proceeds from your love and fatherly kindness. These are the children and the youth whom Christ, by word and example, so earnestly recommended to us. Those who try to destroy public and private institutions and to trample on all human and divine rights have done everything possible to poison and corrupt their tender souls, hoping in this way to put them on the path of evil. Indeed, we know how soft and pliable these young people are and how easily they can be molded into any shape. Once they have been formed, they grow up hardened and clinging to it with a tenacity that defies all attempts to change them. Hence the common proverb, raise a child in the way he should go, And when he is old, he will not depart from it. 1800, Pope Pius XII. So that's our first utterance from the church. Then fast forward another 160-something years, and we have the opening of the Second Vatican Council. And one of the um, chief documents of the council, which I think surprised a lot of people, was a document on Christian education called Gravissimum Educationis. And in that document, we get a number of uh, very interesting quotes. First of all, for a true education aims at the formation of the human person in the pursuit of his ultimate end, and the good of the societies of which as man he is a member, and in whose obligations as an adult he will share. Now that to me harkens back to this notion of handing on a civilization. We're not, we're not simply feeding a child facts, right? Um, it's a formation that is aimed at the end of the human person. The council fathers go on to say, "'Among all educational instruments, "'the school has a special importance. "'It is designed not only to develop with special care "'the intellectual faculties, "'but also to form the ability to judge rightly, "'to hand on the cultural legacy of previous generations, "'to foster a sense of values, to prepare for professional life. That was at the end of a long list of very important things. <laughs> Much more important than just preparing for professional life. The Council Fathers also were very specific about what it would require to have that kind of a school. And what it requires are great teachers. In all my time in education, the number one takeaway is that your school is your teachers. I don't care what programs you plan or how great your marketing is. or Your school is your teachers. Your school is your teachers. And the council father says, but let teachers recognize that the Catholic school depends upon them almost entirely for the accomplishment of its goals and programs. They should therefore be very carefully prepared so that both in secular and religious knowledge, they are equipped with suitable qualifications and also with a pedagogical skill that is in keeping with the findings of the contemporary world. We can't do this without teachers that are formed the right way and are after the right things. And lastly, from the Council Fathers, I'll just quote this. They earnestly entreat pastors and all the faithful to spare no sacrifice in helping Catholic schools fulfill their function in a continually more perfect way and especially in caring for the needs of those who are poor in the goods of this world. So the church has been pretty clear about um, its beliefs and, and teachings on education. And I could go on and on, and there's documents after documents after documents that I've had you know, fun reading um, and, and nerding out about. But for those of you that don't want to do quite all that reading, there's this wonderful little book called The Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools, um, written by Archbishop J. Michael Miller, who was the secretary of the Vatican's um, Congregation for Education for a while. Great little book. You could read it in probably an hour or two. Yeah. So Archbishop Miller, in culling through all the church documents and education, he came up with five, what he called five essential marks of Catholic schools. The first is that they're inspired by a supernatural vision, and that just gets to what I've already talked about. We're we're aiming for salvation, right, not just college and career readiness. Um, That they're founded on a Christian anthropology. When Archbishop Miller articulated that mark, we were so far before this current need to really understand what is the human person, right? Um, we're, we're very confused about that today. So founded on a Christian anthropology, animated by communion and community, which really I think is, is, talks about that I- idea of culture, right? This is not just about a brick and mortar school with 12 classrooms, it's about a community that is passing on something to the next generation. Fourth, that it's imbued with a Catholic worldview throughout its curriculum. This is really a hallmark of modern education as opposed to pre-modern education, traditional education, right? Traditional education, there was a lot of uh, coherence, right, a lot of integration. The notion of, I'm gonna go to math class for 45 minutes and then history class for 45, and then religion for 45, and then science for 45, that's totally modern. That's a completely new concept in in the history of education. It's no more than 150 years old in 3,000 years of educational tradition, okay? What that has done, it, is, it has broken up the, the view of the world for the young person. Right? So it implicitly teaches young people that science has nothing to do with history, has nothing to do with religion, has nothing to do with literature. They're all independent. And that's a, that's a tough way to look at the world. It's, it's a fragmented way of looking at the world, especially in terms of religion. Because it says, yeah, religion is just this thing over here. It implicitly says it's just this thing over here. It's just that thing you do on Sundays. As opposed to when a school is really imbued with a Catholic worldview throughout its curriculum, you can be teaching truths about the faith in math class just as easily as you can in literature class, just as easily as you can in anything else. And not because you say, uh, what is one plus two? Three. Three is the number of the Trinity. I mean, it's not it's not like you're shoving stuff down their throat. But just the very notion that they understand that how miraculous it is that the world is ordered numerically in this way that we can like predict, like that that gives them awe about God. Well, now you're imbued with a a Catholic or a Christian worldview. It's not about like shoving doctrine down their their, their throat every two seconds. It's just a matter of what is your lens. The fifth uh, mark, the essential mark of Catholic schools that Archbishop Miller articulates is that it's sustained by gospel witness. And this goes back to the importance of teachers. And the quote that I love that I always think about when I, when I think about this concept is a quote from Pope uh, Paul VI. He said, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers, Or if he listens to teachers, he does so because they are witnesses. We cannot have a Christian or a Catholic school if you don't have teachers who are witnessing the worldview that you're trying to pass on to the next generation. Kids see right through that. <laughs> So you have to be sustained by gospel witness with your teaching flow. Well, the other thing I would point out when it comes to, you know, what does the church have to say about education? One thing that you hear constantly out of the church is that parents are the primary educators. And for the longest time, I interpreted this chronologically, right? Well, of course, they're the primary educators. They they have the child and he doesn't go off to school until, you know, four or five years old at, at the earliest. But I had a conversation a few years ago um, with someone, a a professor at the Catholic University of America who pointed out that maybe what the church is saying in her wisdom is not so much a chronological statement, but an archetypal statement. Parents are the primary educators in the sense that, think about the education that takes place in the first four or five years before a child goes to school. It's way more miraculous than than the education that takes place thereafter. Language acquisition? Like, that's a miracle, right? And I think the, the reason I point that out is I think the church is wise not to say, oh, okay, schools, you need to defer to parents because they're the boss. It's, it's not that kind of a message. I think it's a message that the, the whole notion of education, the whole enterprise, is through the lens of a parent. That's the only reason we have Catholic schools to begin with, right? And in fact, when you study the history of, of Catholic education here in the United States, which is one of my geeky interests that... The Catholic school system in the United States is a marvel of human history. Did you guys know that? Like nowhere in the history of of human civilization has uh, a system of education ever developed the way it developed in the United States. It's really fascinating. If I were to go get a PhD sometime and like study something, that's what I would study and write about. Um, But it is, it's a marvel of human history. And we've like, we've dumped two thirds of it already. Like schools are closing left and right. And I think a big part of it is because we we don't understand the the enterprise that we're after is really about what would a parent want for a child. Anyway, okay. Parents need community. We can't give what we can't have. Most of us didn't receive the kind of education that we have the potential to give to our own children. And that, I think, is why in in this day and age, Catholic and Christian schools are even more important because it's one thing when you have a really well-formed civilization, if you want to choose to just form your kids at home, go for it. But a lot of us don't have the tools. We don't even, we don't know what we don't know. And that's why I think Catholic schools are, are, are even more important today than they ever have been. And on that note, I want to share a quote from this book, Out of the Classroom and Into the World, How to Transform Catholic Education by Roy Peachy. And in his concluding remarks in this wonderful book, he says this, if Catholic education is to be transformed, families must be the vanguard. Whether they educate their children at home or send them to school, whether they are homeschoolers or unschoolers, whether they operate within the state system or not, parents are the ones who will create the transformation we need. But families face a huge number of challenges. The task of transforming Catholic education may well seem like a job too far for parents who are still struggling to pay the bills, to manage the house, and to raise their children in the faith. This is why we need to put supporting families at the top of our agenda. Our first priority is not looking after buildings, building schools, or recruiting teachers. Our first priority is to support our families. This is why the parish is so important. This is why mutual support groups matter. This is why small is still beautiful. Now, I think the point there is not to not form schools, but if we're going to form schools, it's to support parents. And if you look at the history of Catholic education, that's why Catholic schools started in the first place. The bishops at the First Plenary Council of Baltimore back in the 1800s said, you know what? The the Protestant vision of education is is very anti-Catholic right now, and it's not good for our our Catholic children. Therefore, we have to help parents by founding schools. That's why we founded schools. We're not, the Catholic Church is not in the business of running schools to run schools. It's in the business of helping parents raise their children in the faith. The other thing that I wanna share about sort of what's unique about this vision of education that um, Archbishop Miller doesn't necessarily cover in those five essential marks is something that I learned from the institute, from um, Executive Director um, Elizabeth Sullivan, is no- this notion she talks about called the, the, the sacramental imagination. And it was when I learned about the sacramental imagination that I realized it's all well and good. We, you know, when we discover that there's this whole educational uh, history and tradition that we missed, we can go back and we can read, you know, Homer and we can do all these things. Um, what we can't do is give ourselves the gift of a sacramental imagination there's there's a window that closes on that. what do I mean by sacramental imagination I mean this when our Lizzie was in maybe kindergarten and maybe TK she learned that the moon was a symbol for Mary now I'm embarrassed to say in all my Catholic education and degrees and all that I hadn't learned that. that 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 you know because the moon is is a reflection of the Sun right so it's a perfect symbol for Mary So Lizzie learns this as a four or five year old. From the moment she learned that, any time she looked at the moon, she said, look mommy or look daddy, there's Mama Mary. Now why do I point that out? That's one of a million possible examples when you pass on an entire culture to a child. For example, I walk out a few months ago and my kids and the neighborhood kids had been drawing with chalk on the sidewalk. And I walk out of my house, and what do I see on my driveway but the sacred heart of Jesus? Drawn as well as an eight-year-old can draw it. That's the sacramental imagination. When you give this gift of this kind of education to these young children, they walk through the world looking at it through a lens that is sacramental in nature. My Lizzie can't help but look at the moon and think of her blessed mother her first impulse when she's sketching is to draw the sacred heart of Jesus. That's gonna impact her life in radical ways. And those are two tiny little examples. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but that's the difference between educating from a curriculum and passing on a culture, right? Last points here. The biggest light bulb moment in my career as a Catholic educator was understanding the difference between running a school and building a culture. And I think part of the problem in modern education, especially in religious schools, is that we're running schools instead of building culture because we make decisions very differently. If we're running a school, then gosh darn it, when enrollment gets low enough, we better make certain decisions. If we're building a culture, we go, well, okay, who's with us? How do we build and strengthen that culture? Those are two very different decision-making trajectories. right? This kind of education is about human flourishing. The last quote that I will share, no, second to last quote, the last quote I'm gonna share is from uh, God in this phenomenal book called the case for Catholic education why parents teachers and politicians should reclaim the principles of Catholic pedagogy Ryan topping says this at the end of his introduction he says what is to be done what we ought not to do is to wait for a bureaucratic solution the problem is not even that we need more money though endowments indeed must grow the source of our crisis is in the mind and in the heart What we need is a rebirth of a 1,000 Christian communities, and among them a renewed understanding of and loyalty to the principles of learning that have animated our tradition for centuries. What we need in our homes and in our schools is to welcome a new springtime of Catholic education. Even now, the days grow brighter. But before I propose principles of renewal, our first task will be to survey the craters on the landscape. And then he goes on in that great book. So with that in mind, I want to share just for two or three minutes here um, some principles of the Camino Schools, of which I am now the executive director. So what are the Camino Schools? Camino Schools are an organization that exists to promote and renew culture through the foundation of great schools. Um, When I read the the founding document for the Camino Schools, and it was before I ever realized it was a a possibility for my employment, um, I was really drawn to the fact that the founders clearly understood the potential impact of great schools on culture. Because again, one of my basic operating principles ever since that light bulb went off was, this is about building culture, not about running schools. And they clearly saw that in their founding document. They really care about culture in general, but in particular, here in the state of California, hence the Camino School, sort of a nod to the first, you know, Christian culture and culturalization of of California through St. Junipero Serra um, and the founding of the missions along El Camino Real, right? So our founders see three ingredients um, to to great schools and, and to renewing culture. Um, and, and those founders, I, I should say, are they're three couples who, who each have young kids themselves, who they want to benefit from the Camino schools, but also are really undertaking this monumental endeavor because of the impact they, they think it could have on culture. So what do they see as those three ingredients? Number one, great families, Great friendships and solid formation, and they understand that that great schools can um, foster those three things in a unique way that, that other institutions uh, uh, can't quite as easily. So they want to partner with parents um, and also form the parents and and partner with parents who want to be formed. Right? One of the first impulses I had when I discovered this whole renewal movement was, I want to learn. I want to grow. I wasn't given what what I have a right to. You know, so. We, we wanna partner with parents who want to um, give themselves more so that they can, in turn, give their, give their children more. So, so we wanna attract families who have a commitment to shared values, who value great formation. That means formation, not just education, so spiritual, character, as well as intellectual. Um, so, so the founding families um, saw some other schools around the country that were founded in this way, in a very unique way, and they wanted that for their own children, and they wanted it for for Greater Orange County um, in general as well. And so that is why they are founding um, the Camino Schools. We wanna be a model for California. Um, We wanna wanna prioritize um, formation uh, and community and the development of the whole person, and that is why we're founding the Camino Schools. So the model is going to be two separate schools, an all-boys school and all-girls school, third grade through eighth grade each because one of the things that the founding families saw when they visited these other schools, they were also single sex in nature. And they really understood or, or saw firsthand when you allow boys to be boys and girls to be girls, when you have a, a, an educational philosophy that is based upon what excites a boy or what excites a girl and how, what a boy needs to thrive versus what a girl needs to thrive, The way that you can tailor that education is just unbelievable. And when I had the opportunities to see a couple of these schools out in Houston, Texas a few months ago, I have to say, I've had the great pleasure of visiting schools all over the country. They were two of the most remarkable schools I've ever seen. And I think that really has a lot to do with it. So two two schools, all boys, all girls, third grade through eighth grade, with a co-ed K through two that feeds those two single-sex schools, so that is what we are looking to uh, found in the fall of 2024. Um, we are we are right now toying with or not toying with, but but um, contemplating based on on what we're learning from families out there exactly what grades we're going to open with year one. Um, but I will I will share that I think it's going to be more than we expected based on the feedback that we're getting. So um, we're we're very excited about that. Um, so to close. I wanna quote God himself. And this is um, something that I, I, I pointed out to students over the years, when I really wanna make them feel guilty. I sit them down and I say, you know, if you read the gospels, there's, I'm not a, I'm not a scripture expert, but there's only one profession that I think Jesus really um, pointed out exclusively and, and, and commented on, and it's teachers. And I, ch- I try to make the students feel real guilty, like by, by doing what we're doing, like. Jesus is counting on us There's a lot of pressure on our shoulders And so you better, you know, appreciate what we're doing, right? So um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18 We hear Jesus say this Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck And to be drowned in the depth of the sea now, when I shared sort of the overview of my talk with my wife, she goes, that's really the point you're going to end on. It's kind of a kind of a downer. I don't want it to be a downer, but I want it to be a reminder that the importance and the weight that all of us carry uh, in the, the education and formation and, and passing on of our, of our faith to the youth, and it's not limited to parents, this, is, this, is, this should be and must be a priority for the entire church. So in whatever ways that you can, this, this is simply the, the, the crux of my message, in whatever ways that you can, um, help renew the formation of young people in your circle of influence. Whether that's by homeschooling your children or sending them to the right school or asking, them, asking the right questions at your parish school or find, I mean, whatever you can do. Uh, or go teach or go recruit, it, whatever. But I think that there is nothing more important and there is nothing that gives me greater hope for the future than authentic Catholic education and this kind of, of education, the Christian vision of education, because it's what, uh, it's what our world needs more than anything else. So let's talk. Uh, we'll be here for a while. Thank you very much for your attention. God bless you. Thank you,
1: Thank you very much. Brother Chris. So we'll definitely have a Q&A segment here. So you see there's a mic right there. So just fall in line there. So for those who have any questions, make sure to line up and um, we'll capture your questions. Out, first
2: of all to St. Hedwig's Amen. and Rosary High School and Servite High School. So I, I suppose my question is connected back to what you're speaking about, this resurgence of Catholic education, um, the trivium, the quadrivium. And at the same time, I find really interesting someone like Elon Musk with his children. He actually poached his kids' favorite teacher, teachers, and started his own school at Astra, I think at SpaceX. And then from there went into uh, something called synthesis school. And it's kind of like this online school. And it's like connecting all these kids all over the world, et cetera. So my question to you is, because knowing that parents also are anxious about cost of college, future careers, you know, where the U.S. is in terms of global dominance or dissension. And so my question is, in what sense do you think this sort of Catholic education might need some updating for the modern world or at least some sort of integration of technology? And I'm not saying it needs to have iPads or laptops and, you know, those in in education right now, I've seen we've kind of like blindly accepted those things without, I think, critique. But in what sense, like we aren't living in you you know the year nine hundred or a thousand? Not to say we can't take the precious things from history and the sort of inheritance to give on to the future, but realistically, also when you're looking at what you're dedicating your time to in the classroom and the school culture, how do you also realistically? integrate, confront, form in the midst of AI, in the midst of social media, et cetera, et cetera? That's
0: that's an outstanding question. Um, One thing I would say sort sort of, well, I think part of the problem and part of what the tech entrepreneurs are actually communicating themselves is that uh, any kind of new or innovative thinking actually requires the type of education that I'm talking about. right? there's a, there's, a, there's a tech entrepreneur by the name of Michael Ortner who gave a keynote at the uh, ICLE National Conference a few years back called, see if I can get it right so that you can Google it, from, um, and then we'll, we can link to it in the podcast notes. But from Greeks to Geeks, why Catholic classical liberal education is the best foundation for a STEM career. Okay? So this tech entrepreneur, he had this thriving tech company, and they had a college intern program. And to do a buddy a solid, he told him that he would uh, get his two high school boys an internship at his company. So he goes to his director of internships. He says, hey, man, will you take your... And, and the guy's like, really, Mike? High school kids? Come on. Like, this is going to be such a pain. Well, these high school kids were at a, at a Christian classical school. So they go to do the interns. So Mike forgets all about it. And a couple weeks later, his director of interns you know, comes to him. and He goes, where did you find these kids? He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, this those kids you made me, you know, give the internship, he goes, they're not human, they're running circles around our college interns, and, and Mike goes, no, they're what humans are supposed to be, something, he said it much nicer in his talk, but they canceled their college internship program, and, and created a direct relationship with this Christian classical high school, Um, all that is to say, I think this kind of education is what allows for Innovations in technology, right? So it's easy, and they'll all tell you they can teach you the how, to, what, what buttons to push in a, in a matter of months. What they're finding is they have a lack of, of, of young people coming into the workforce and working for their companies that can notice patterns and make connections and think in the in the, in the critical way that they need them to actually be productive more so than because what's going to happen is AI and things like that are going to are going to put the the mechanical part. To, to, you know, we're not gonna need humans to do mechanics anymore, right? But AI is still proving that it can't do the, the critical thinking that, that humans can. So I actually think that the advances in technology today are, are only further showing us that this kind of education um, is, is what we truly need. And then when we have this as a foundation, we'll be able to take technology and do all the right things with it and take it in directions that we should if we don't have the right tech foundation, the technology is gonna take us by the hand and you know, lead us places. so anyway, those
2: are my
1: thoughts. Thank you very much, Brother Chris, for your talk, and question for you is about, um, I think it's, it, it dovetails perfectly in what you were just saying uh, just a few seconds ago. It says that most people basically need a career or uh, to make money just to survive. That is just a, a fact of history now. So how does a liberal arts or basically a non-utilitarian education or way of knowing things really help at all? Because we do know that from history, you mentioned Dewey, right? So it really has an underpinning of uh, an industrial way of a world, and we are in that now. So now coming back to the classical way of thinking, um, what are the tangible uh, or practical ways that we can benefit from this, even though we can say, yes, it's spiritual, All what, what matters really is salvation and then, the things are just periphery. But just to make it more sacramental, so uniting the spiritual and the, the bodily reality, um, how does the liberal or non-utilitarian way of being educated help in this day and age? Another great
0: question. So I think we have uh, graduated away from, I think in Dewey's time, it almost was like you, you did go to school to learn a particular craft or, or skill to you know start with a company that you'd be with for 40 or 50 years, right? That, that's a thing of the past. So uh, I think what is proving to be the case is that, if you, again, if you have this kind of foundation, because it's so rare, you are coveted in almost every field that's out there. With the exception of, I shouldn't say, no, not with the exception of, you want this kind of foundation, and if you wanna do something really specific, like let's say, I don't know, you wanna be an electrical engineer, you are gonna have to go to school for, for that particular skill set, but you're going to be a ten thousand times better electrical en- engineer than any of your classmates if this is your foundation, right? And I just think that's varying. Um, you know, we're finding that uh, you know graduate schools are more desirous of of students that can think and write and 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 speak this way. So I, I think this kind of education is almost more practical than the modern progressive kind because it's it's getting eclipsed, you know, by its own standards. So yeah, I, I can't imagine being more employable than having this kind of foundation. And I think places like, again, it, it's, it's a little more anecdotal than, than data-driven, but like, I, I, I think of a place like Thomas Aquinas College and the way that it highlights what its graduates do. So for those of you that don't know, Thomas Aquinas College, tiny little Catholic, classical liberal arts school. Uh, by design, it has a student body of 300. They don't wanna get any bigger than that. It's literally a single uh, curriculum. If you come into Thomas Aquinas College from freshman to senior year, here are the books you're going to read, cover to cover, and you're going to discuss them in seminar format with with your peers throughout the course of four years. That's it. That's what they do, and they talk about um, all the all the amazing things that their graduates go on to do, and the way that they're coveted by all sorts of different industries, tech included, almost especially. Um, so I think the the results are 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 sort of being shown that this this kind of education sets you up for whatever you want
2: to do. So I'm a teacher. I had to endure some classes at LMU as a part of my education. So given that these programs are not um, geared towards these teacher credentialing programs are not geared towards forming teachers to be educators of the soul, to form the soul as we spoke about tonight. How will communist schools go about engaging in the task of forming their teachers to be Catholic educators that form the whole person and lead their students towards salvation?
0: great question. I think one of the things that I've found in my experience, whether it's you know with the Institute or at Holy Innocence or now with Camino, a lot of people, their first impulse is that they think, oh, to teach at a, at a school like this, you have to have some specialized you know education or you have to know the classical tradition. Or, um, what I have found is that many people who go into education, I'm, I'm guessing yourself included, when they recog- or when they're introduced to this versus what they might find in their local school of education they go oh that yeah, that that's why i wanted to be a teacher that's what i that's what i thought i would be doing like i can't tell you when when i was at the institute we'd go and do these workshops for these faculty members you, you'd have teachers who had been teaching for 10 15 20 years in a catholic school and they'd go that's what i thought i would get to do and i, I don't like what i've been doing you know um, so I don't think it's so much that you you know we have to go find these these people with these specialized uh, uh, credentials. What we what we're going to try to do, and what I've seen done at many schools, Holy Innocence included, is you find the people with the right that they just have the right disposition and the right um, desire. The, the the details can be taken care of. You know you, the, the 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 skills that you need to um, to offer this kind of education, it's not rocket science. Again going back to that point about parents as the primary educator, what parent goes to professional education training, but look at the way they educate their child. Now, sometimes for better or for worse, right? <laughs> um, but to educate a child, is, you know, it, I think it's more about disposition than it is about, and, 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 and it's not like, do you care about that child? If you do, you're gonna figure it out, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's just mission alignment, disposition, desire, and we, we can we can help you with the rest.
2: Thank you, Chris, so much um, for your comments tonight. Um, perhaps answered this in part by your um, previous response, but um, I really appreciated your comments around um, partnering with parents. And I suppose my question is along the lines of like, what do you envision for not just the school, but the community around the school? And um, what does ideal involvement from parents look like?
0: Great question. First of all, it's not about you know 30 service hours, right? Which- Sometimes is is the case. Um, I think going back to, you know, when I talked about sort of the vision of the founders, in in that um, they want to partner with parents who also want to be formed, right? And and formed by a community. Um, I know that one of the things that I love and feel really blessed from Holy Innocence is that it's not just a school, it's a community. So when, when Annie and I and our kids are at Mass on Sunday, like, we're in the pews with the same families and kids and parents that um, our our kids are around by by virtue of being involved in the school, right? So in terms of what does ideal participation look like, I think it's just, it's it's a true community. It's not, yes, you're gonna be at the gala and you're gonna do your, you know, 30 hours, but it's it's truly um, people who, um, sort of organically start you know they're having dinner together they're spending sundays together they're going on retreat together um but they're they're truly fostering a sense of community you know and, and that can that can manifest in so many different ways but um but that it's authentic and not programmatic and not you know event driven but um but sort of organic life driven i guess is sort of a idealistic way of answering that that that's what i have in mind and I see it at in early innocence, and I think it's replicable in any school setting. You know? So that's what I'm planning on,
3: yeah. Hi, thank you for your talk, uh, that was great. And just to go earlier on your discussion on formation as well, if you get any students or you have any parents who feel that maybe their child, while maybe in Catholic education, is feeling a calling to say the priesthood or religious life, which is a reality, especially among, you know, practicing Catholic families, What would the school do to foster that or to actually make that a reality because we may get actual you know vocations while in catholic school oh no question i think i
0: mean i i will just say quickly one of the things that i saw in my time at icle when having sort of the ability to survey these schools but one of the common denominators of, of schools that that sort of start going in this direction very you know enthusiastically is that they see vocations you know and they start they almost, you know, start, you know, it, it becomes one of their metrics of success, right? <laughs> like, you know, um, so in terms of what the school would do to foster that, I think my, my answer is everything possible. I mean, and again, I think it goes back to that notion of parents as primary educators being archetypal and not chronological. Like, you know, if if, if you're really serious about this vision of education, whether you're a teacher in the classroom or administrator or whatever. The whole reason that we're there is to foster their vocation, right? Um, whether that's to married life or religious life, or um, but the if 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 this vision of education is really about human flourishing, then it's about becoming, you know, the 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 the, the person that God created you to be, and creating an environment and a culture within which you can um, develop into that person freely and authentically and you know um, enthusiastically, uh, and without reservation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not answering it in, in super explicit ways, but <laughs> I,
3: I guess it's more for, uh, in terms of maybe secondary education level, as those vocations become more obvious or more pronounced in, and people feel the calling, what can we expect to see maybe in the Camino schools or any other school, uh, ca- you know, Catholic school that would offer resources or offer an opportunity to have that actually become a real thing? Yeah, well, one thing I'll say
0: is I think the single sex approach um, will foster that far more successfully than, 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 than otherwise. Um, I saw that in my, my own experience as a student as well as my experience as an educator at Servite. Um, one, I think one of the benefits of single sex education, one of them is certainly you can tailor the education to that, right, to that you know, male or female but the other true benefit I think is that you 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 give young people the opportunity to um, develop and and get comfortable in their own skin and figure out who they are in an environment where they're not worried about you know what the opposite sex thinks. Right. My hunch, again, I don't have any statistical data for you, but my hunch is that uh, a school like this, that's formatted this way, is going to be able to foster those religious vocations much more successfully than anywhere else. Because most of the things that would inhibit that in in a lot of other environments are are gonna be taken away, so.
3: Thank you for your talk. I have a question. A lot of this seems geared towards general education. What would you say, any practical tips towards those who are more in special education? Um, Like those who specifically work in special education or those who, therapists who work alongside them, such as speech language? pathologists and the like like general education like is the seven academics you mentioned the seven right core curriculum so what do you have any in terms of especially bringing the faith to others when you're doing the special education do you have any practical well
0: yeah i'll say right off the bat one of the things i found is that the classical approach the the traditional approach um is far more amenable to a wider spectrum of learners right um the um I've seen children who require certain special accommodations in normal modern progressive schools at a, at a classically oriented school um, need far less accommodations. The, the mode of teaching, because it is so human and not mechanistic, um, typically makes it accessible for a far wider range of learners, first of all. Um, when there is severe needs, um, it, I don't. I don't think I can offer an answer other than it's a case by case basis. Some schools have the resources to offer things that other schools can't, um, and 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 it becomes case by case. But I. But I will. I've seen it firsthand that you know, uh, this this mode of education because it is so human and rooted in the way that that humans are, are designed by God. You know, modern education cuts against the grain. You know, it is not our natural tendency. To sit in a desk for eight hours a day, it is not our natural tendency to simply regurgitate facts. It is not so. So the classical approach works with, and 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 in the in the the direction of the grain of the way God designed us. And for that reason, I think a, a much wider spectrum of learners are able to succeed in that environment. The other thing that I find amazing is that Holy Innocence, in particular, because of the demographic that it serves. There's a huge wide uh, range of learners, and they're all excelling. Um, but the the classical there's just something about the classical approach that the learner is able to just dive in and take to to the ability that they to the level that they have based on their ability, and it's just I I've been fascinated by it, and I've seen a that's much less of, of a need for something special.
3: That's part of what I like about methods such as like Montessori that cater more to the individual child's needs instead of trying to just do a one size fits all with Correct. education.
0: That's right, and, and, and to that point, one of the things I didn't necessarily touch on, but a, a big difference in the modern approach versus the classical approach is the purpose of the teacher, right? Purpose of the teacher in modern education is to be the expert at the front of the room, give facts, and ask for them to be regurgitated, right? In c- the classical approach, the pedagogy is very different. It's my job is to take you as a learner and, and do whatever I can to help you discover the truth on your own. Again, going to parents as an archetype, as, as opposed to just the first chronologically, if I look at my classroom of 20-something kids and think in terms of a parent, like I want, I want to help you succeed in whatever way I can, it's exactly what you're talking about. I need to find a way for, for Louis to succeed that's different from you to succeed. That's, that's, that's human, that's just a fact of, of life. And in the classical approach, it allows for that, right? It's not just cookie cutter, it's not just here's the unit test. And- I'm sure you
3: realize that even as a parent that each child was different.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm an only child. And to see the three, the, my three kids and how different they are, it blows my mind daily. It's
3: just amazing. Thank you. Of course, another question.
2: One last question. So I actually am a homeschooling mother of five little boys and- um, Great work. I teach them a classical education He's the Moria Press and Beautiful. my boys, I have two with learning disabilities. So it's been beautiful in the sense that they've been able to tailor their education because they have dyslexia. And so we've done classical education, but at a very different pace than my typical learner. So my question for you is, how does, I know it's hard because it's like a very specific question, how does one tailor a classical school and still try to include those with learning disabilities?
0: My sense is that one of the biggest issues in that regard is has to do with assessment, right? Um, again, a sort of a a characteristic of modern education is that assessment is very cookie cutter, right? We're gonna have a unit test with 20 questions, whatever whatever the case may be. I think another characteristic of the classical approach is you're giving authority back to the teacher, like a parent, in the sense that I know what my Maggie needs is different than what my Lizzie needs and is different than what my Liam needs, right? And I assess how they're moving along (laughs) differently based on that. In the classical approach i can take one of your one of your sons who might have a learning this might have dyslexia i might i might um ask him to show me what he's learned in a given subject or given you know topic or whatever in a much different way than i might ask another child because i know well he maybe he's not going to be able to sit down and write me three paragraphs about it but i might sit him down and have a conversation that shows me he's every bit as knowledgeable about it you know as, as another child so I think assessment has a lot to do with it, um, and and putting the authority back to the teachers to say that, yeah, I feel really good about the way that you know this child has developed, and I think that's a big part of it. And just having the um, freedom and ability to to tailor things to different students, things you know, in, in the modern approach, you don't have that freedom. You know, it's just it's very standardized and mechanized, and you have to do it this way, and you have to have this certain kind of output. So. Um, to have that freedom. And then I would say also it's, it's about the partnership of parents, right? So it's about the ability for a school to sit down with you as a parent and say, okay, your, your child does have some different needs. How would you like to see us handle those and accommodate those? And lo and behold, let you have the majority of the input in that discussion
1: as opposed to the, the school just being the expert. The right? so, yeah. Thank you very much, Chris Weir, and then a round of applause for our brother here. <laughs>